As weird as this sounds, you know what one of my favorite desserts is at the end of a you know a good meal, a long day, and you just want to relax? A bowl of cereal. I love cereal. Don't get it as much as I used to, you know, especially as a kid. But uh, the biggest reason is there, there's really, you know, it's not healthy at all. You know, <laughs> the cereal that we like, it's that sugary, carb-loaded, just empty calories is really all it is. Uh, but it's just so good so sometimes. But that is where Magic Spoon has stepped in and said, you know what? Adults like cereal. Let's make some healthy cereal that actually tastes like cereal, something good, something indulgent. And so they have come up with a zero sugar, high protein, low carb, very tasty cereal. It's keto friendly, it's gluten free, it's grain free, soy free, GMO free, and it comes in four different flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry. Uh, that covers pretty much all the bases of everything that uh, that I would indulge in. And so if you're looking for kind of that 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 craving satisfier of, of having a great bowl of cereal, something I actually just had, um, but without the guilt attached to it, Magic Spoon is your answer. If you'd like to try some, go to magicspoon.com slash ASP for Adventure Sports Podcast and grab yourself a variety pack today. And if you don't absolutely love it, they have a 100% money back guarantee. And again, you know, New Year's is coming up. We're all trying to be a new, a new self. Maybe it's a bowl of cereal to start your day that can help you do that. magicspoon.com slash ASP. And you can use the code ASP for free shipping. All right, now on to the adventure. You know, it took me three years to quit smoking, and it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And I know for a lot of people out there, they'd be like, big deal, did it in a day. But, you know, if any, if adventure has taught me anything, it's that uh, the most difficult things that we, that we face, the challenges that we go through in life are very relative to us as individuals. You can't compare your personal experience. Welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason Gravely. Uh, I hope you had a wonderful Christmas or Kwanzaa or Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate. Uh, we celebrate Christmas. It was great. Um, we had a wonderful time. It actually got cold here. And yeah, but, I, but before we get started, I actually wanted to challenge all of you because at Athletic Brewing, we're challenging all of our ambassadors, all 500 ambassadors, to do some sort of end of the year adventure to basically say, you know, um, screw it to 2020 and say, you know, we're going to finish the year on a really high note on something we're proud of. And so with just a little bit of time, less than a week that we have left, it is not too late to plan an overnight trip or plan something. You know, we have, we all have nine to fives, hopefully, you know, you have a job or you have some responsibilities, but there is the nine, the five to nine that's still open and do not discredit the time that you can fit adventures in between your daily schedule. Some of my most favorite recent memories have been trips that have happened between work days. Um, get off work, go do something, be back ready the next morning uh, for, for work the next day. So it's definitely possible. I want to challenge everyone listening to this to do something to finish out the year on a strong note. I'm going to be doing something and I'll report back to you what it is 
uh, next Monday. But anyway, getting into today's episode, I know Ray, who is who is the guest today, I know he would be a huge fan of, of that and would definitely encourage you to do the same thing uh, because that's kind of what he did. He was living his life, not, not really happy with it, smoking two packs of cigarettes a day is what he said. And gosh, just turned his life around, got into ultra running, quit smoking, which he said was harder than some of his adventures and took multiple years and just started doing these little things that changed his life. And now he is a huge inspiration and was one of the first inspirations for me uh, through his documentary that was um, directed by Matt Damon, which is Running Across the Sahara. You can find it on Netflix. I watched it back in 2010 and not long after I was planning my first adventure of cycling from Alaska to Florida and seeing um, documentaries and inspirations like Ray, Ray Zahab, um, Rolf Potts book Vagabonding was hugely in- influential in that. Uh, those two guys really were a huge inspiration. And so I really encourage you to check out his documentary on Netflix uh, and everything else he's done. We barely scratched the surface on everything this guy has done. Uh, it's pretty remarkable. But uh, yeah, wanted to thank Ray for being on and I hope you enjoy the episode. All right, folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. Very exciting episode today. I'm pretty stoked because uh, after doing research on Ray, I didn't put these things together, but Ray, you were really early on as part of my inspiration. I remember watching the uh, Your Sahara Desert Crossing documentary back in probably 2010, right before my first big adventure. So Ray Zahab, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Jeez, like that's a trip down memory lane. That's a long time ago. Yeah, man. No, you know? no kidding. A, a friend invited <laughs> me over to watch that, you know, on, on a weekend. And I watched that. And I, I didn't know things like that were being done at the time. And so I was in college, uh, saw that and thought, this is crazy. And not long after that, I went on my first bike expedition, just bike touring. And uh, so thank you for that, man. Thank you. But I don't think you were mentioning a little bit before before the uh, we started the episode. That's not where your life started. Could you take us, you know, kind of what you were doing early on, maybe where you grew up and what your childhood was like? Absolutely, absolutely. I, you know, it, but a funny story before I get to that, I, I got to tell you about running the Sahara, which is what you were referencing before. When we finished the expedition, so 111 days, 4,500 miles, so that's roughly 7,500 kilometers. Of running across the Sahara, when we re- when we reached the Red Sea on the last day, and it sort of first hit the media, nobody would pick up the story because they like they didn't believe that it was real until they heard, <laughs> you know, that there was this documentary film, right, being made, and like you know Matt Damon was the producer and all this jazz. Then people were like, oh, okay, so it's got to be real then, you know. And it was I remember that, that being sort so of a crazy. funny thing because to be perfectly honest with you, dude, like I thought for sure there's no way. I was going to make it the whole way. Like I didn't think so. And this sort of alludes to the first point because when I, when I was running with the guys with Charlie and Kevin across the Sahara, literally I started running. That was 2007. I started running give or take three and a half, four years before that was when I started running. And the first, uh, foot races of any kind that I was doing were, were ultra marathons. Like I went right from, you know, not running to, to running, you know, to running these ultras, but to back up even before that, to directly answer your question until 2000, 
um, until I was basically 30 years of age. I was like a pack a day, two pack a day smoker, you know, typical. It seems uh, you hear a lot of that sort of in the adventure world, but I'm like this reformed unhealthy person that was like a heavy drinker and partier and abuser of various chemicals. And then, you know, you, you end up, you know, deciding that you're no longer happy with the direction that your life is going or not going. And, and you just want to genuinely be happy. And so I'm very lucky that in my life, I have a younger brother. He's a year younger than I am, my brother, John. And he was into all these cool sports like ice climbing and mountain biking and paddling. And he was doing all these amazing things in, in the late nineties and that were so, uh, I, I, I'm going to use the word formative for him. Like he was really finding out who he was by doing these things. And it was defining who he was. Like he was just like Mr. Confidence by by doing these things. And I thought, wow, if I could just feel a little bit like he did, maybe my life would be different. And I really didn't feel like I had anything to lose. So I convinced him to start taking me out doing these things. And it would take me, you know, it'd take me three years to quit smoking. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. And I know for a lot of people out there, they'd be like, big deal, did it in a day. But, you know, if any, if adventure has taught me anything, it's that uh, the most difficult things that we that we face, the challenges that we go through in life are very relative to us as individuals. You can't compare your personal experience. So at any rate, mm-hmm. he got me into this stuff and it changed my life 180 degrees. And, you know, eventually seven years after changing my life, I find myself running across the Sahara, right? That is wild, man. Dude. <laughs> that was crazy. I, I mean, it was for your brother, it's like, you know, well, I'm sure he was grateful to be, you know, be inspiration and all that. But then all of a sudden you are the one being known for these things. What what, what was that like from a brother well, to brother you know, relationship? We, well, when we first, it was, you know, it, it, we fought like cats and dogs growing up. We grew up in a, in a small town in the Ottawa Valley in uh, Ontario, Canada. And, um, you know, we had different sets of friends. You know, you just, you'd, you'd just fight like, like, like crazy when we were kids. But then we became best of friends in early adulthood. And, and we actually became climbing partners. We used to do a lot of ice climbing. That was primarily the sport that I loved was, was ice climbing in the early two thousands, did a bit of adventure racing, uh, tons of mountain bike racing, raced cross country to a fairly elite level and did well mountain bike racing. But I wasn't a runner of any kind. My brother who is like taller than I am, more sinewy than I am was like the epitome of a physical runner of the physicality of what I thought runners were. And so that was sort of his gig. And my gig was uh, hammering my mountain bike down the trail. I loved mountain biking. And that's sort of where we diverged. But it wasn't until I, I read an article about ultra marathons in, a, in an outdoor magazine that I was compelled to try my, my very first ultra marathon, which was a hundred miler in the Yukon. And, and not only did I finish it, but, but I won it. And it just sort of set in motion a different standard that like uh, of what I thought I might be capable of or what human beings thought they were capable of. Like I just realized that running was going to teach me that, that we as human beings are capable of so much more than we think we are. And he never, it didn't change our, if anything, it made our relationship better, you know, because he celebrated the fact that I was learning the things that he kind of already knew. And you know, he's just not, he wasn't a competitive guy. We, we compete with each other on the trails, but he's subsequently to that, uh, that, that change that I went through that epiphany, he's been on multiple expeditions with me, helping out 
with a foundation that I have impossible to possible. So not to elaborate too much on that, but he, he's been involved in my adventure life since that time. I feel like there's a lot of people that listen to this show that, that hear the stories, hear these stories of adventure that we often go into great detail about, and they just don't know how to take those steps from where they are. Maybe that pack-a-day, two-pack-a-day smoker, really not that active or healthy, to running across a desert in a relatively short amount of time. What, what were some of those major milestones for you through that? Well, a big, uh, you know, a major milestone for me, you know, was the sense of constant uh, failure. The glass is practically empty outlook on life, unhappy. Um, and, and I think the hardest thing was to mentally get my head around um, that I was no longer satisfied being unhappy. Like I was the kind of person that, you know, life of the party, haha, but looking at myself in the mirror. I wasn't honestly a happy person deep down inside. And I just realized that that was not a survivable thing for me for a long period. And so I knew that that had to shift the way I truly felt, not nice words, motivational words felt, but how I truly felt had to change. And so that, that leap from someone who was afraid of taking risks, afraid of taking chances because of what other people would think, because I was afraid of failure, because I was afraid, blah, 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 blah. And my negative outlook or, or sort of unha unhappy tinge that I put to everything, you know, in my life, that, that flip to making things, yeah, you know what? Uh, it, the glass is half full. Like that perspective, that was a monumental task in making that happen. Was that, that a happen. conscious Be effort? Yeah, dude, for sure. Being happy, I had to work at being happy. I had to literally, I remember that when I first started to, when I said to myself, okay, I'm taking this new life. I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to like, totally, I'm all in to what my brother's doing. And I'm going to just, I had nothing to lose. Right. Like, I mean, I just, I was like, this is, this is going to be it. And I had to work at being happy. But after a while from working at it, I started to look at things from a different perspective. It just sort of happened. And instead, I became less of a pessimist and more of an optimist. And, you know, fast forward 10,000, 12,000 miles I've spent on my feet crossing practically every large desert on the planet and these, you know, cold expeditions that I do all over the world. All this time later, all these years later, and, you know, overwhelmingly, hey, everybody has bad days, but overwhelmingly, I have a different sense of, of happiness and positivity than I did before. Without trying to sound too corny, I know that totally sounds corny, but it just things have changed, right? But but I think it's I think what we all forget, or especially now, I mean, it's just the way things are now. But we we lack sometimes a belief, like we all just think it's words, right? And we almost lack this this belief that we can actually do something or we can actually change something that we just we just automatically think we can't. You know, and it's being honest with mm -hmm. ourselves. And I think that when, when you're willing to just the very first time, you know, put your foot out there and try that that's very empowering. You know, it, it's, I remember, look at an analogy I always use is that, and, and it, you know, I, I remember what it was like. I still remember like exactly what my prior, my first 30 years kind of felt like. Right. 
And I, it's like walking into a room that's, that's lit, right? And then all of a sudden the lights go out and you have some bad times, right? Well, you know where the light switch is. You know, you've lived that other side. You know what darkness feels like and you know how to, you know, brighten the room up. But if you've always, you know, if things have always been perfect or status quo or whatever, you never really learn. That's, you know, so that, that adversity can sometimes be a good thing. And then you build a, resili a, a resilience from it. But somebody asked me the other day, well, I, you know, I'm sitting on the couch. I, 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 want, I, I want to do something. That I, was, I was where you were. What would you tell me? And I said, you know what? Walk to the door, put your shoes on, go outside, come back in, take your shoes off, go sit back down on the couch. Next day, walk to your door, put the shoes on, walk to the end of your laneway or your block or whatever, and then turn around, walk back, take your shoes off, sit down on the couch. Each day, add a little bit to it. Like metaphorically speaking, you don't run a marathon without stepping, the first, taking your first step, right? So it's like that mindset, you know? All righty, let's take a quick message break and hear from one of our sponsors. <clears throat> With the new year right around the corner, it's time to start planning some new adventures. And one of the most important things you need to do is make sure you're staying hydrated. And that is where Hydrant comes in. It's a refreshing drink mix powder made with four key electrolytes, sodium, potassium, magnesium, and zinc. It's made with real fruit juice powder, no artificial sweeteners, none of that garbage, no nonsense. It's all science. And actually, for an extra boost, try new Hydrant Immunity, which contains vitamins A, B12, B6, C, and D, along with ginger and turmeric. Water meets wellness in a vitamin-packed drink mix that you can drink cold or hot for these chillier months. If you'd like to try Hydrant today and make sure you have it ready for your next adventure, you can get 25% off by going to drinkhydrant.com ASP and using ASP at checkout. That's drinkhydrant.com slash ASP and enter promo code ASP for 25% off your first order. Hydrant, where water meets wellness. Ah. All right, now back to the show. Absolutely, man. I, I can tell you the, the days, you know, it doesn't take much either to get the machine running. You know what I mean? The spark plug sparked and kind of this engine of, of looking at life this way running. And I hate, you know, and I don't mean to just kind of run off in this philosophical direction, but it's like, it's not that hard to get it moving in the right direction, if that makes sense. Just like you said, put your shoes on, walk outside in your yard, come back in. That can sometimes be enough to like light this fire. And so absolutely for you, you know, it, it, it is a climb. You look at your biography and it's like every year, the early 2000s, just something here, something there. And then it just grows um, with that first ultra that you did. You say you won, which is just <laughs> crazy. What, were, were you expecting to win, or was that a oh, surprise? Oh, dude, I, it was it was just a unmitigated disaster from the time I entered the race. I thought there's no way, right? But the reason I here's the crazy thing: like the reason I entered the race in the first place, I read the article in the first place because I thought it was something that might interest my brother. And I thought, oh, I'm going to read this article because, look, it says marathon in, in the title of the article, ultra marathon. I'm going to read this. This was like in the 
late 2003 when I read this article. And this is something my brother would love. So I'm reading about this, this Yukon Arctic Ultra. But it was the photos in this magazine that were of, um, and, and, and subsequent to that, going on the internet and researching it a little bit, of regular people. Like these, these racers looked like normal people. They didn't look like marathon runners from the Olympics. They looked like normal people, like normally sized people. There was people of all shapes and sizes. And I thought, this is amazing. Like this is obviously not just a physical thing. These people know something about themselves to have the confidence to go and do something like this, right? So I was like, I want to know what it is they know. And it went from me picking up this magazine and reading this article to tell my brother about it to the end of the article and subsequent search on the internet, deciding this was something that I wanted to do without any real running experience. Like I said, I'd, I'd raced mountain bikes at a fairly elite level. And so I raced all over and I, and I did some adventure racing as well. So I, you know, I knew how to take care of myself in the outdoors by this point. But running for 100 miles was a completely different thing. And so, as you can imagine, I didn't have any money in those days. So I had all kinds of borrowed gear. And you drag a sled in this race with all your mandatory gear that you need. And, you know, I had a, I had a plastic kitty sled from the Walmart. That's what I drag and dragged. And I made it to, like, the 50-mile mark in this thing and thought, that's it. Like, I am totally done my legs were killing me and i thought there's no way that i can get to the finish of this thing like i am out and there wasn't very many people in this race so i was totally alone in the middle of the in the yukon in the middle of the night right it's it's 40 below and i sat on my sled and i and i i contemplated what am i going to tell all my friends back home that told me like in the 30 some odd years of bad decision making dude this is like the kahuna right like this is the big one of all bad decisions coming here to do this thing that there's no way you had a chance of finishing and you blew every dollar you had to get here i mean what a disaster but but this other you know thought in my mind sort of welled up and it was like well what the hell nobody gives a damn like i mean i i entered this race for me because I wanted to do something to learn something that I thought other people learned about themselves in doing this thing that I read about. So what the hell? Like, I mean, as much as my feet are killing me and I'm frozen and I'm like scared out in the woods, like I came here to, to learn something. This is just go until you can't take another step. And it's like, I just, I just got up off of this sled and started dragging it through the, the woods on these crazy trails. I just kept telling myself, go as far as you can, go as far as you can. And, and I and I I promised myself that if I like fell to my knees, if I couldn't take another step, that I'd be happy going home because it would take it would take pushing myself beyond any limit that I'd ever had. Like I'd go beyond any mountain bike race that I ever did. Like just give her until I had nothing left, and then see if I learned something from it. Like that's where I put my head. And one thing led to another, and I got from that fifty mile mark to the end, and to my own disbelief, one that I'd never won anything like this in my entire life. Like I crossed the finish line. No one was there because I was the first one to get there. Right. right. So, I mean, it was ridiculous. And, and, um, that, that here's the, the more, even more amazing thing. So when I crossed that finish line, I remember not having any pain in my body, no cold, no fear, nothing. And I just remember thinking to myself, wow, I felt so shitty 50 miles ago. And now I feel amazing. How is that? Like, that doesn't add up. There was never a mountain bike race that I didn't cross the finish line and feel trashed or an adventure race that I felt like a garbage at the end of, right? 
but I feel better. Like, how is that? And I realized that it was running specifically itself that was going to teach me that I could go beyond any physical or mental or emotional limit that I think I have. And that the only way to really figure out how I did that was to continue doing these ultra marathons. That's how I got into running. I mean, it wasn't like, okay, finally, I found something that, that, that I'm good at. I'm going to like really stick to this and just crank this out as far as I can. It was more like, well, that's amazing. I don't know how that exactly happened. I got to do this again somewhere. And I started entering these races all over the world. You know, it's awesome. So that's how it started. That's how, and then, and then it led to running the Sahara. Right. So then I met these guys. Yeah. I was going to ask, tell us about how that came about. Cause that's, yeah. that's a big jump from an ultra ultra is huge. Ultra is huge from jumping from a pack a day of cigarettes to that. Then running across the Sahara is an even bigger jump for sure. Well, so, so I was doing these ultra marathons. Like I was, I was traveling all over. I went to Libya. I went to uh, Egypt. I went to Morocco. I was doing these. I, I, I chose to do the ultras that were more adventure because they kind of, I, the one aspect I loved about adventure racing is you're out in the middle of the woods and you're navigating. And I just love that whole aspect of it. Right. So I decided to do ultras that were kind of more adventure. I, I just love that whole aspect of it. It was really exciting and new for me. So I would pick these races that were in far off places where you'd have to carry a bunch of gear or find your way or whatever. So I did a race in the Amazon. I did a bunch of different ones. And through these races, I ended up meeting uh, Charlie and Kevin, the guys that I would run across the Sahara with. And we came up with this idea after doing several races in different parts of the Sahara Desert. How awesome would it be to run across the entire Sahara Desert? And of course, me, you know, like I didn't attend very much school. You know, I'm one of these other <laughs> game, you know, I, uh, you know, I. Well, we'll leave that where it is. And so I I didn't have my my knowledge of geography of North Africa wasn't exactly accurate. So I was thinking, how far could it possibly be? Right. So, you know, when I finally commit to this thing and we realize how far it is and then it's the numbers start to sink in. You're thinking, oh, my God. But um, I always tell people it was six degrees of separation, serendipity involved as well. But Matt Damon uh, heard about this project and wanted to get involved. And so they decided to make a documentary film called running the Sahara about Charlie, Kevin and I and our 111 day journey right across the Sahara. And then use that as a way uh, to fundraise and create awareness for the water crisis in North Africa. And so the expedition itself was obviously, as you said, a dynamic shift from ultra racing. It was the first expedition you know it spanned november 2006 till february 2007 for us to get it done we crossed six countries um including all of libya and egypt places i'd been before but to go entirely across these countries was amazing and then leaving that expedition and actually being able to finish it and do it i knew that that was the direction that my life would go in after that and that i i loved this concept of taking on a challenge that was open-ended. I didn't know. Realistically, deep down inside, I didn't know if I could complete it. And I love that not knowing. I love not knowing what the outcome was going to be, the unpredictability of it. I love that. I love the complications of logistics. So projects I've done since then have become infinitely more complicated with navigation, logistics, um, location, all of these things. And so it's kind of like it just sort of, took a life of its own. I just knew that that was what I wanted to do. And simultaneous to that, 
I also decided that I was going to start a foundation that would give young people an opportunity to learn the same things about themselves that I learned through ultra running and running the Sahara. So I started Impossible to Possible as well. Same time with Bob Cox. Bob is the one that got us connected and and Bob is fantastic. And I I wanted to kind of hear because, you know, a a lot of the athletes, especially, you know, these personal expeditions, uh, you know, a a big life change, you, you hear these stories and it can come across as their adventures, their adventure resume and it's kind of all about what they can do next. And it, and it seems very, um, it can be very self-centered when there's nothing else going along with it. But for you, it seemed like early on this idea of adventure and completing these giant goals quickly grew into how can I get other people involved? How can I make this possible for others? Uh, you know, what led to that process? What led to kind of that thought around that? And how did you go about chasing that? So, so 2007, we finished the running the Sahara expedition and it was, you know, it was, it was life-changing for me because I realized that I had a tremendous capacity to learn when I was on the expedition, like learn about culture, learn about a water crisis, learn about economics, learn about science, all of these things that were all encompassing on our journey across the Sahara desert. And I kind of like, I'm scratching my head and I'm thinking, well, where the hell was I when I was going to school? you know, logging straight F's and, you know, barely getting out of high school, right? Like what the hell now I just, all of a sudden I want to learn. And I realized that through adventure, there's a great opportunity to learn. And so when I finished running the Sahara, I I did another project in Canada, uh, a big uh, running base project that, that spanned the three coastal regions of Canada. And right after that, I was in, um, the U.S. at a fundraiser in Texas, and I and I met Bob, and uh, through mutual friends, we met, and we started talking about this concept with my wife, Kathy, and we were talking about this concept of giving young people an opportunity, like saving some time. Hey, guess what? Learning can be amazing. The world is an incredible place. There's lots happening in the world, and what could we do to, to combine adventure and education? And so we decided that a really incredible and relevant way to do that would be to take a group of young people, 15, 16, 17 years of age, take these young people on their own expeditions around the world and through their eyes, see the world through their eyes and learn about a subject through their eyes. So using satellite technology and using experts, bringing experts along, teachers, uh, professors, scientists on these expeditions, You could take, for example, a group of kids into the central Amazon jungle, trek for 100 miles to the Amazon from one indigenous community to the next, learn about biodiversity, play it out through a live website to classrooms all over the world. You can have tens of thousands of students on the other end, hanging on every moment that these kids that are their age, their peers, basically, are out in the jungle doing this incredible thing through the Amazon, learning about biodiversity from the people that live there, it all of a sudden becomes a compelling and relevant subject and, and, and something that young people want to learn about. And so it was really important to me that if I was going to continue doing my expeditions, you know, the South Pole expedition or the run I did across the Atacama Desert or any of these projects, that they would be used in a way to not only communicate with students who follow my own expeditions, but also 
fundraise for the organization Impossible to Possible. So all of my expeditions since running the Sahara have been in support of Impossible to Possible. And all of the Impossible to Possible expeditions are 100% free for the youth that go on them, for the schools that participate, and for the staff that volunteer to come along. And we've done, I don't know, Bob would know exact numbers, 15 or 16 youth-based expeditions to this point. We've done so many, I can't even remember, to the most remote parts of the world. So we've had youth ambassadors on these trips from you know, all over the world, going all over the world. And, and their experiences, they become the heroes. It's their expeditions. And we use my expeditions as a way to leverage partnerships and sponsorships to keep everything free and impossible to possible. I hope that's making sense. And so, I, and, and I remain a volunteer in the organization because it's my passion. It's what I love to do, you know? Can you tell us maybe a story of, of an expedition or, or something that happened on an impossible to possible expedition where, where you thought to yourself or realized like this, this is exactly why I'm doing this. Oh, every single expedition. I mean, honestly, every single time. But I think there's been a couple of, you know, there's been a couple of really amazing moments. And they're not, they're not necessarily the ones that are like, the, you know, the, the corny moments that, that you would think. Obviously, there's the drama, right, of, 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 of kids like, or young people, like, forgive me for using the word kids, for these young adults learning about how extraordinary they can be, right? You see it in their eyes. Like, you're 17 years old, you're trekking through the Amazon jungle. Forget it. I mean, for the rest of your life, there's nothing you'll do that you'll you'll come into, you know, hardships or walls in front of you later in life. And you'll be like, mm, yeah, but when I was 17, I trekked across the Amazon jungle. I can I can do this. Right. So adventure teaches that resilience. Right. So there's a million of those stories. But seeing we did a, a youth expedition one year in partnership with uh, the University of Utah and the BLM and, and uh, in, in Utah. And it was, we were studying the rise of the dinosaurs. And I'll never forget seeing this group of youth ambassadors basically digging for dinosaur bones, like having their hands on dinosaur bones in this area of the Grand Staircase um, outside of Kanab, Utah, and working with the paleontologists. And that connection with classrooms where the students, it, like thousands of kids from around the world are tapped in on a live feed for this segment, for this like one segment of one day of this expedition. And everybody was so stoked to learn about dinosaurs in that moment. And I thought to myself, like, this, this is like totally what it's about. It's really is, you know, for me. And so when I'm on my own expeditions in some far off part of the world, you know, I'm thinking about moments like those because that's what compels me to get to the end of my own projects and keeps me going on the next one because it's, it's per it, it for me personally. It's purposeful. You know what I'm saying? That that I get to do these <clears throat> things that I love to do, but use them in a way to support the thing that I'm the most passionate about. It, it seems like a an amazing balance between still being able to go after these goals of yours, not letting it become too self centered, of course, but making an impact and using these skills to to change the world, you know, as corny as that sounds, but it's essentially what you're doing through adventure, through getting young folks out there to have their own experiences just like you've had. Yeah, well, I, you know, I think I, I, I wouldn't say, uh, you know, definitely I don't feel like I'm changing the world, but I do, uh, you know, I do feel like we are making an impact with the people that we are connecting with. Like, even if I'm on my own expeditions, like uh, we crossed um, Lake Baikal, Siberia, 
in winter 2010, myself and my buddy Kevin, unsupported, self-contained, hauling sleds, minus 45, you know, storms, the whole nine yards. But we brought the satellite equipment. And between the time zone changes between Siberia and the schools back at home, U.S. and Canada, we would be like, you know, middle of the night or whatever. And we'd fire up that satellite began and we would do live video conferences with schools or live sat phone conference calls with schools. And it was just so energizing to hear how excited students were to be part of my own expedition or, like I said, with with the youth expeditions. So. I think that that's the thing about adventure that that is it, it's such a powerful thing. It's such a powerful uh, way for individuals to learn about themselves, but it's a powerful way to share share uh, in general uh, with those that are, that are participating as well. How do you choose the next adventure you're going to do? Because it seems like you, you you know correct me if i'm wrong it it looks like you you choose one to two large adventures to focus on each year yeah so it's an awesome question and so i you know i kind of have i've had a list since running the sahara of the places that <laughs> right. i wanted to cross you know and and you know it it really it takes me years sometimes to plan kamchaka took 4 years of planning um, you know, I knew that I wanted to cross the Gobi Desert. Uh, you know, I, I try to cross the deserts in summer, uh, when it's summer in the deserts, if, if ever possible. And, and I love going into the Arctic and colder regions in the middle of winter whenever possible. And I do projects as well on the outside of those parameters. But so I, I pick the places that I'm really, truly passionate about. It's, it's where do I really want to be? You know, being in the Gobi Desert in Mongolia and again, learning so much about such an incredibly vibrant culture, um, there was just so much to learn. It was something that I was really excited about. It was a compelling component for me, even though huge parts of that desert, I, look, I was solo on that expedition I, I with minimal resupplies. There was days and days and days and weeks I would go by without seeing another person besides my crew, Right. But then there was those there were those three or four communities that I, desert remote desert communities that I ran through, where it was this amazing, you know, this amazing interaction and uh, amazing uh, things for me to learn about um, while I was there. So I, you know, I picked the expeditions based on places that I've dreamed about that I really want to go to, um, and um, yeah, you know that are, that. that I want that. I want there to be a huge amount of challenge, obviously involved, but it's not about that. It's really about a a a, a love. I think I have for the place that I want to go, but I don't really know until I get there. You know, there are there are parts of the world too that I like the larger deserts, like the Sahara, the Gobi Desert, the Atacama, the Patagonian, the Namib Desert. You know, I, I've crossed all of those on foot. Would I cross them again? No. You know, I go back with clients to, to highlights and, you know, that I'm, if I'm guiding to very specific regions of these deserts, but, or, or youth expeditions. But for me personally, th there are a few places that I do go back to, um, you know, I've been to Death Valley uh, a number of times doing projects down there. I love it there. Baffin Island, I've crossed it nine times. You know, it just, there, there are parts of the world that I love to continue to visit and um, that I just find fascinating in exploring them in different ways, but they're shorter trips in a sense that I can explore them from a different perspective, right? 
So typically, as you said, it's like one longer project I do per year. And then I got to fundraise. I got to, you know, it's not cheap. So you got to get, you got to make that happen. Right. And then it also has to be relevant to the next youth expedition that will come after it as well. So, man, very cool. It's just, just such a cool concept to tie it all in together. Do, do you have a preference? It looks like you, you balance it pretty well because, and, and I know that we're not really, you know, covering one specific adventure, uh, which is what we typically do on the show, but you have so many, uh, that, that, that are all completely worthy of their own episode. You know, if you ever want to be back on, cause it's just hard to focus. Do you have a preference between those, those extreme hot desert environments and then the cold, or is it like trying to choose between, uh, your favorite kids. You just enjoy them both. No, I appreciate them both. I definitely, I, I love the heat. I love the heat. And, but I can do cold. I'm good at cold. I just don't like it. <laughs> you know, the problem, the problem is the coldest places are, are some of the most beautiful. Like the Canadian Arctic is extraordinary, you know, and the Canadian Arctic in winter is even more extraordinary. So the price to pay for that is it's extremely cold. Very, very cold. Like on my last expedition, I had winds in the minus 60s. You know, it's it's cold and dark in the winter. So, you know, but but I do love both ends of the thermometer. You know, both crossings. I did a off-road crossing of Death Valley National Park with my buddy Will. I did that uh, north to south. And I also did west to east over the Panamint Range and over the Ambergosa Range, crossing through the Badwater Basin. Both of those trips were in the middle of summer. You know, and so I love that you know, being there in, in those. And uh, the same goes for the Gobi Desert, which was a few thousand kilometers, uh, the Namib Desert, which was close to that as well, et cetera, et cetera. Those were all in the middle of summer. So it, it's not like I'm a sucker for punishment. It's that I want to be in the desert in its most deserty, And I want to be in the Arctic in its most Arctic-y. And, and be, it, like, just feel the environment and be in that environment when it's going off the most. You know what I mean? You know when what it's I mean? going off the most, the, the yeah, yeah, like yeah that's like, hilarious. It's like the colors of the the sky and like the you know just the heat, the rays of heat, for example, coming off the the basin at Death Valley. You know, it's just mm. amazing to see and witness. You know, I, I once biked across Death Valley, uh, east to west, in the middle of summer, January. No, I'm sorry, January, pff, July 29th, and. uh that that just about did me in. I'm not gonna lie. You know, it, it was uh, it, it it was really difficult. So I can't I can't even picture. I can't even imagine being on foot, doing what you were doing. How do you prevent yourself from from going? You know, having a heat stroke or stuff like that. Is it is it a level of training? Because you you don't do this. I mean, you have a you have a life. You have a you have a family to take care of. You have these other things you're doing. The business side of this that takes a lot of time. How are you able to prepare your body for stuff like that? Well, it's it's an interesting thing because using the Death Valley expeditions as an example, they're both they were both off road expeditions, eh? Completely off road. So you're you're. Ter the terrain is very unpredictable. You can do your best uh, mapping and Google Earth and and everything else. And when you get there, like the shit hits the fan, right? Like it's a completely different set of, uh, you know, eyes on the ground and what you're actually seeing on the ground. So 
but to prepare for the heat of Death Valley, I obviously, I, you know, I train midday. I live in uh, Chelsea, Quebec, and it, our summers are very hot and humid here. And so, you know, I'll run midday in the warmer months. I have a sauna that I train in as well in, in my backyard. And so that prepares me as well for the heat. I get my body physically ready as much as I can. But I'm thinking about these places months and months over and over every single day before I get there. Right. I've planned. I've poured over maps. I've planned every meter of my route. Um, but still, last year in July, when Will and I did the west to east over, that was in 2019, July 2019, when we came over the Panamints, we had a cache buried at um, the base of the Panamints. And so when we started um, up over Panamint uh, Pass and then came down the other side, even with the best research we could do, and any intel that we could get, we were in a part of Death Valley that is so infrequently, if ever, uh, visited. And we got into the top of Johnson Canyon, where the overgrowth was so crazy that it was sort of this almost impenetrable mess. Of a, it was like it was all like being in the jungle in Death Valley. Like you would never think there was this much vegetation, but it was just so thick. Wow. And at one point. We knew we'd have to, we were about 50K from a cache and it's a billion degrees out. And we knew that we'd be filtering as we made our way if we could get down to these streams. And the stream that I had planned all along filtering from was underneath a, a minimum a yard of matted and compressed vegetation. So we had to dig down through this vegetation, which was like just like a, I don't know how to describe it to you, like a spider's web vegetation to get those filters down into that little trickle of water that was down there, you know, to, to cool ourselves. How do you plan and prepare for that? You can't, right? You just have to, after, you know, the experience of knowing that these things can happen and a, an ability to stay calm in, in a situation when, when bad things are, are happening or when could be potentially happening, it's that collective experience that keeps you the most prepared. The physical aspect of getting ready is nowhere near as hard, right? As, as that aspect. So I guess you could say it's a collective experience from being on so many different expeditions and being in many different scenarios in all the hot places on earth that kind of prepare me for that, for that one moment in Death Valley when we only have a trickle of water to rely on. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I, I, this might also be like you know, choosing between your kid about which one is the favorite. Is, is there an expedition that you've done that might stand out as as maybe the most impactful or one of the most impactful or something that really, when you look back on your resume so far, you think that that, that one really changed me? Uh, well, I mean, they all change me and I'm not trying to avoid the, the question, but honestly, I just, I don't tend to look, I don't tend to look back too much, right? I just try to try to, you know, glance in the rear view mirror and learn from what I've done and push it forward into what my next expedition is. I try to be totally focused on that. And, you know, the stuff that I'm doing with impossible to possible. I have two daughters that are 12 and nine. They're big into trail running. They're flat water paddlers. They're cross country skiers. They're into all this stuff. And they love, they love being on the trails. We live on the trails for that reason. And I have a filing cabinet in my in our front hall and it's got any magazine articles I've done of these adventures, you know, 
uh, any of this stuff, awards, all that kind of stuff is all tucked away. None of it is on our walls because I don't want it to be about what I've done. I want it to be a place where my daughters can develop their own love and passion and sense of um, confidence uh, from what it is that they're doing through the things that we do as a family or through their own sports. You get what I'm saying? So I approach my expeditions in that same way with as much humility as I can and realize that every single one of them is a learning experience. I've almost lost my life a few times and I don't take it for granted that what I do is dangerous. Uh, but I try never to forget that I'm, I'm in nature and I'm just a small, tiny speck in these places that I go. So rather than dwell on something in my mind that I think is a great achievement, take the smaller lessons that I can learn from it, tuck it away, you know, any thoughts of achievement and instead look forward to the next expedition, you know? So tell us about, your most recent expedition as well as, as what you have planned. Um, speaking, speaking of all that. Yeah. So being in a COVID year, right. I mean, I had a really big project planned for this October, uh, a 5,000 kilometer traverse, which is not happening, um, right now. Uh, but I'm rescheduling that for down the road. So I'll tell you guys about it. Maybe you'll have me back on someday and I can tell you more about it then. So I don't jinx myself, but the last trip I did, uh, was something that I had always wanted to do. And it's a place that I love in the Canadian Arctic. It's an island called Kikiktarjuak. And right off of this island is basically the waters of uh, the Davis Strait. And so my goal was to cross from Kikiktarjuak across this, I'm calling it the Davis Strait, but the body of water changes its name. It's the sea ice though. Um, cross the sea ice over to Baffin Island, then cross Baffin Island and continue into the fjord on the other side and then get picked up. And so my goal it was always to do a January crossing of this entire region. And um, this past January, I did that. And it was, you know, obviously there, it's January in the Arctic. There, there's very little snow. It's cold. It's very windy. Um, there's very little daylight, just a few hours. Polar bears are a risk. Um, there's all of these elements that come into play, but my goal was to be self-contained and to be dragging all of my supplies with me and move as swiftly as I possibly could. And dude, you just go online and look at my face after. Even though I was covered up and everything else, the frostbite was crazy. It was so cold. But you know, I was successful in being able to, to get across. And just to be able, I'll never forget, there's a region on Baffin Island Summit Lake as I'm crossing over this 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 pass, this glacial moraine and these this high pass. And I'll never forget it was a perfectly crystal clear night. There was a breeze, so it was damn cold. But looking up and seeing the northern lights, it was just extraordinary. You know, bouncing off the Turner Glacier and Mount Asgard and Thor Mountain in the distance, you know, outlined, silhouetted. And it was it's incredible. These granite cliffs that are five thousand feet vertical from the the, the base of Baffin Island, straight up, right? And you have the northern, it's framing the northern lights. It's just incredible, you know? Fantastic, man. That is, I can't even imagine. Sounds, sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, the stoke level was, the stoke level was super high on that one. But, you know, I've got, so I've got various, you know, projects planned for down the road. We had a couple of youth expeditions as well with Impossible to Possible this year that were postponed till next year. And, um, we're going to be sticking a little bit closer to home on those youth expeditions. The ambassadors have been selected who will be going on those trips. 
and Bob's been working really hard at putting together um, trips that are going to be uh, into some of the lesser known U.S. national parks, which is really exciting. And so we'll be collaborating with schools on delivering uh, virtual, um, you know, like sort of like an immersive and virtual experience into these regions, which will be really cool for students in the U.S. and for Canada who have not visited the U.S. That's really exciting. And then, um, you know, hopefully I'll be back to guiding. I've, uh, you know, a group of clients that are really excited to travel next year and go to some of these places that I've been. So I'm really excited to take them with me. It's a great way to make new friends, you know? Oh, Ray, I love your energy, man. I love, I love just, uh, you know, going to a place, visiting it, but really scouting it out, seeing what kind of adventure can be possible there. Then, bringing these these young people along with you to to experience it them themselves that's uh that's incredible man great you know just i i don't know what else to say other than congratulations on that uh that that life change you made uh when you were 30 and and making all this happen and inspiring so many people through it uh i'm finding i i just turned 30 so i'm very excited about uh the the impact this talk has on me um Thank you. Well, I tell you, you got, I'm 51 and I'll tell you, it, it's just, it's amazing how when you, we're all explorers. We all are explorers in one way or another. Right. And, but you know, and, and, and it's something that I've learned is that the adventure can be in your backyard or it can be in the Sahara desert. It can be wherever it is, but adventure in general and exploration in general, just opens your mind to the possibilities of what it means to be a human being, like to what our capacity is and, and to the things that we can all do personally. Right. So Absolutely. it's, yeah. So I would encourage people just go after the things that you really want to go after as corny as that sounds and, you know, prioritize, you got one kick at the can, you got only, you got one trip on the planet to do things in your life that you don't just think about that you act on. And, and if anything, I'm spending the second 30 years of my life making sure I live to that every single day. No doubt. Mm. Mm. Ray, well, well, I, I imagine people can find out more about you at, uh, at your website as well as impossibletopossible.com. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share with people about where they can find out more about you? Yeah, no, just, you know, so the typical social media, like I'm on Instagram, uh, mm -hmm. Facebook, I have a public page with a little blue check beside my name. If people have, you know, questions, I'm always at my public page. I'm never at my other one that's not public. I don't know what the hell you call that. And then, you know, Instagram as well and Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. And I'm on all that stuff. And just my website's raiseahab.com. Perfect. Well, Ray, man, I, I, uh, <laughs> I, this is this is this is cool. I, I'd love to have you back on at some point and specifically talk about one of your trips. Um, maybe just kind of really get the marrow out of that and just hear maybe maybe one that you you do coming up so that so that it's fresh and we can promote uh, anything that you'd be w wanting to promote. But uh, man, I appreciate you jumping on and I love what you're doing at Impossible to Possible. Uh, let me know how I can get involved. It, it sounds like a great. Great thing to get young people involved. I mean, it, it changed my life to, to, one, see your documentary, two, to go after my own adventure, and just the trajectory of my life is totally different ever since, so so thank you. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here and uh, love to be back again. So we'll right. make it happen. Wonderful. Ray, thank you so much, man. We'll, we'll be talking soon. Thanks, brother. All right. Okay, catch you later. Right. Bye. Bye. First of all, 
Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun.